Today on Stronger Than Reason, I'll dig into Depeche Mode's timeless classic, Violator. Welcome to Stronger Than Reason. Today I'm revisiting a band that I first talked about long ago in episode 7. And they're one of my favorite bands, but I should qualify that. I'm really only a fan of a certain period in their history, and the times before and after that period just aren't as interesting to me, and later on I'll talk about why that is, but for now I want to focus on one album in particular. It's the one that launched them into the stratosphere, figuratively, that is. Uh, You might well ask why I didn't just talk about this album in the last episode about this band, since this is the album that was most commercially successful and the most critically acclaimed, and those two things don't always go together, but they do in this case, and last time I chose to talk about a double live album of theirs, which kind of amounted to an early best of. It came out the year before the album I'll talk about today. So let's just think about that for a moment. They had a live double album with an associated feature film before the biggest albums of their career. And that's the level of success we're talking about here. It's the kind of success that most bands never come close to. This is a band that played the corporate game for a long time. They had many years of development, as it's called, and a whole army of pluggers getting their songs exposure around the world. They had relentless touring in Europe and the U.S., and they slowly grew their fan base all around the world. They worked really, really hard for a long time. This is a band that started very young, and let's face it, they started off as teeny bopper heartthrobs making music that took advantage of new technology, but you can't say that it was super hard-hitting in those early years. But through the 80s, they matured, and with that maturity came more of an edginess, a darkness, a flirting with the taboo, and they had some underground dance hits, and they were on mute records which gave them some indie street cred, and more and more fans latched on. And they also had considerable luck. Uh, After a decade in the industry, they found themselves in the right place at the right time. They were coming of age at the forefront of the alternative music scene, right when it was going somewhat mainstream. And remember, this was the pre-grunge period when alternative music was getting some press, starting to generate a buzz. Those were the years when the dedicated few would stay up all night on Saturday to watch 120 minutes on MTV. And I was one of these, at least until I figured out how to program my VCR. But Depeche Mode is the band, and they amassed a following in the United States. And in 1988, they would play their biggest show yet to 60,000 fans at the Pasadena Rose Bowl. And that alone could be a career-defining achievement in anyone's book. After all, that's an even bigger crowd than the one that saw the Beatles play at Shea Stadium in 1965. But little did anyone suspect that Depeche Mode were still on just a mere foothill. They were about to scale into that rarefied air of being one of the biggest bands in the world, a band that even your mom would know about. You know, back in 1990, your mom was probably humming along to their songs in the grocery store or waiting in line at the deli. Uh, This was a band that would no longer be just an alternative sensation or a dance sensation. With this album, they would become a mainstream sensation. And this album in particular, which came out in 1990, would be 
much like Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon was for Pink Floyd in 1973. In some ways, a career pinnacle, a watershed album that would leave the world stupefied, wondering how on earth any band could even continue after such amazing success. And few bands ever have that happy problem. But that's the problem that Depeche Mode had in 1990 after they dropped their magnum opus, Violator. So let me talk about first hearing Violator back in the day. Um, first, I should say that it's it's true that I know every moment of this album. I've probably listened to it hundreds of times, many hundreds of times. And for an example, not long ago, I found myself on a long car ride and there were people sleeping in the car with me and I had forgotten my headphones. So just to kind of keep myself awake and entertained, I just replayed this album in my mind. I replayed each song, every moment, just kind of keeping time with my foot that wasn't on the gas pedal. And 45 minutes later, I was done. I had listened to the whole album in my head. And I know it sounds crazy, but I could do that because I really do have this album memorized. And I'm confident that if I found myself in a weird yesterday kind of situation where I was the last person in the world to remember Depeche Mode, I could recreate this album pretty closely. Um, Now, I can't pinpoint the first time I heard it, but I have a few impressions around hearing this stuff. And for one, I remember discussing the band at a friend's house, and the gist of that discussion was the fact that they didn't have a drummer. And we just couldn't get our heads around that. Remember, we were in high school at the time. We were a bunch of knuckleheads. But this was a band that didn't even pretend to have a drummer, yet their music had lots of drums. (laughs) It's not that we were being judgy about it. It was more like we were just puzzled. Like, why wouldn't a band want a drummer? Like, drummers are great. Like, why wouldn't you want a drummer? And if they didn't have a drummer, what in the world was going on on stage when they performed exactly? So we were just confused. Uh, Another impression I had was, my sister's then boyfriend who loved alternative music making me a crappy tape copy of Violator. And I have to admit, I didn't listen to it much at first. I really didn't know what it was he had given me. But I was aware of one of the tracks, Enjoy the Silence, because it was gradually seeping into public spaces. I would hear it around town. In fact, I distinctly remember hearing that song at a local amusement park over the sound system. And my friends and I were like, ooh, it's that cool song with a band with no drummer. And it had these synth pad stabs all throughout that were really distinctive and kind of made it sound like nothing else. That and just the big dance beat and the guitar hook. I mean, what's not to love? So eventually I'd give my dubbed tape a deeper listen and I'd listen to it over and over and over and I would eventually just wear it out. I'm pretty sure it was just a crappy tape from Radio Shack. So by the time I was in college and haunting used record stores, I would just pick up this CD. And I just knew that I'd be keeping this CD for the rest of my life. So by then, this album was just something that I knew I'd always have to have around me. Uh, So then, Violator was out, and as the singles came out, each of the singles seemed like an album unto themselves. So someone would buy the single and kind of copy it onto tapes for everyone, which is what we did back in the day, for better or worse. And, you know, the video would drop on MTV. It would be like an event. So at this point, Depeche Mode were firmly in the U.S. Top 40, and Violator was just eating up the charts. And I was wrapping up high school, just coming of age myself. 
and was getting into all these alternative bands. And I understood that Depeche Mode had been an alternative band, but were now breaking through to the mainstream in a big way. But they still had all their indie cred as far as we kids were concerned. And they were coming from a very different place than, say, like Howard Jones or Level 42. Not that there was anything wrong with those guys. I was actually a bit of a Howard Jones fan back in my middle school years, maybe because of his video for You Know I Love You, which more or less was like a low-rent version of the video for Sledgehammer, but maybe also for the fact that I got his album one-on-one for free from a local radio station on cassette, of course, for helping to paint a mural on their wall. (laughs) But that's another story. But I I could recognize that he was making electronic dance music, and I liked that even as a kid, even if I wasn't very sophisticated about it. Um, But Depeche Mode weren't some Johnny-come-lately industry follower. I realized that they had deep roots in alternative rock. They had been around for 10 years by this point. Uh, Violator was their seventh studio album. So they had a pretty deep bench of songs and a history that the press was digging into, and they were not at all like the, you know, manufactured McBoy bands that would pop up all over the landscape 10 years later trying to just cash in on a fad. So as discerning music fans, young music fans, we decided that Depeche Mode were okay, that this was a band worthy of our attention. And if they were becoming popular, it wasn't like a knock against them. It was just a case of them getting what they deserved after years of hard work. So a few other impressions of this time. I remember that our local Pizza Hut had a jukebox with 7-inch singles in it. Yes, that's how old I am. And we'd play Policy of Truth there, as well as its B-side, Collide. And we, I have to admit, we had an obnoxious habit of just being jerks in this place. And we referred to it with affection as the P-Hut or the Fut, as in Jabba the Fut. So I'm sure we were just playing the jukebox all the time in kind of a low-key attempt to just annoy all the other patrons. But another thing is that we had this kid move to our school that year from the big city. Let's call him Matt. That's close enough. Um, He was a bit more sophisticated than us and had actually seen Depeche Mode live on the Violator tour. And (laughs) we just couldn't comprehend such things. Uh, I may have mentioned that I grew up in the Burbs far enough away from the big city that I I couldn't easily talk my folks into going there to see some dodgy English band. Uh, The only real concert I had been to at this point in my life was Huey Lewis in the News. And you know, that was actually a pretty big deal in the late 80s. Uh, Huey was all over the damn radio. And to this day, I get a little ill hearing his stuff just because I was forced to hear it for years and years, like I'm sure all of you were. Um, Kind of the same thing with Phil Collins and Michael Jackson and Madonna and Billy Joel. You know, I'm just like numb to all of it now. But here's the difference. You know, Huey Lewis had very wide appeal at the time because my parents were just into as into seeing him as we kids were. It just appealed to everyone, you know. And Depeche Mode, on the other hand, felt different because here was a band that only the kids were into. And somehow that felt more exciting Maybe it felt more dangerous in a way, but me actually going to see them never entered my mind. I wouldn't start having those sorts of thoughts for another year or so, Uh, but I did get that experience secondhand through Matt, who was more than happy to tell me how they indeed had no drummer. They were just three guys on stage playing keyboards with another guy singing, 
And he also told me about this other band that opened for them on that tour, Knights or Ebb, and how they also didn't have a drummer, but were just two guys, one bald guy and one with long hair. And that news really astounded me. Like, you could have a band with no drummer and just two guys? I mean, what's next? No drummer and just one guy? And <laughs> little did I know that I'd soon become a huge fan of Nine Inch Nails. <laughs> but Matt didn't just tell us about De- Depeche Mode's live show. He showed us because he had their live video 101, which documented their previous music for the Masses tour, and in particular that final huge show at the Rose Bowl. So we got to see for ourselves who these guys were and how they comported themselves on stage. And he also gave us a handy summary of their career prior to Violator, since 101 the video and 101 the live double album were effectively, you know, a best of of the band to that point in time. And as I said before, the band were so successful at that point that they really could have just knocked it on the head and still had careers to be proud of. But I dug into 101 before, way back in episode 7, so if you're interested in that, check out that other episode for more of that story. Um, Back to Violator. So now, I should say that I didn't anticipate Violator at all. It came out before I was even aware of Depeche Mode. All of this happened after it came out to me. So my friends and I had a lot of catching up to do. And to that end, one enterprising friend picked up a copy of Catching Up With Depeche Mode, which seemed like a reasonable thing to do. This was a U.S. compilation album that came out in 1985, so it predated even music for the masses. But we were appalled, because instead of dark, groovy, electronic rock, it was full of cheery, blippy pop songs, and it was our first indication that the band had matured quite a bit in their 10 years, that their current style, which we loved, was something that they grew into. And even now I consider early Depeche Mode an acquired taste, It's not something I'm really into. To me, it's mostly a curiosity, knowing what they would develop into later. Uh, But it's funny. Some of their early albums did have songs that would have fit on later albums, and you'd get glimpses of what was to come. So my favorite of these was maybe a song called Lie to Me, which was off their fourth album, Some Great Reward. And I think it would fit stylistically and thematically with anything on Music for the Masses or Violator. It's just a cool, sexy song. So let's dig into Violator specifically. First, the artwork. Of course, uh, this marks the band's first collaboration with the great Dutch photographer Anton Corbin. Minimalism was very in at the time. This was just another example of that. It's a very clean design. Uh, 99% of this sleeve is just featureless black. (laughs) And this cover is now iconic, of course. Uh, It's a rose that is spray-painted maroon, and if you look really closely, you can see that it's, you know, tied to this black background by two bits of black string. And then you have the band name in the upper right corner in Helvetica, of course, in a position that really reminds me of the color code on New Order's Power, Corruption, and Lies, which you see there. Um, And then the album name and Anton's handwritten script below. So it's, I thought it was a pretty odd decision to have the band name so formal and the album name so organic. And on later albums, he'd end up handwriting both. Uh, but anyway, if we open this thing up, you see we have a few black and white shots of roses and some, you know, barely visible portraits of the band that are kind of hidden in there. Very low contrast pictures of the band. 
um, and lyrics, of course. And, you know, it's a pretty decent booklet, if kind of minimal, some information about the recording. And I kind of have to wonder who has this rose today. You know, I, I imagine it's hanging on Anton's wall or something. I'm sure it's still around somewhere. It's not like it was going to decompose with all that paint on it. It'll probably last 10,000 years. But yeah, the cover was clean and stylish and most importantly, black, like our hearts. Uh, it was suitably dark, like some of the songs. And the name of the album, the band had said it was kind of a joke. They tried to come up with a name that was as unlike them as possible. And they imagined Violator being some sort of crazy heavy metal name. And they thought it was funny applied to them. And after the fact, they said that most people took it at face value. And the joke aspect just went right over their heads. All of which is great. Okay, so... Let's talk about the songs. This album is almost unfairly packed with hit singles. Okay, so it has nine tracks here listed on the back. Um, of these nine tracks, six would get official videos, and four of those would get full single releases. So, again, let's just think about that for a minute. Two-thirds of the songs in this album had videos, and nearly half got the full single treatment. That's just nuts. You have to think that Mutant Sire knew what they had here, so we're just milking it for all it was worth, and giving the public as much Depeche Mode as they can handle. And in 1990, we could handle quite a bit. Uh, another thing going for this album was that it was the band's first big collaboration with Flood, a.k.a. Mark Ellis, and he was a music producer who was on his way up. He had worked with a, a veritable who's who of electronic rock over the years, including acting as a tape op, an engineer for New Order and Ministry on their early albums. Uh, he had done a lot of production for Erasure. And around this time, he was also doing production for Knights Are Ebb and Nine Inch Nails on Belief and Pretty Hate Machine, respectively. And if he needed any further credentials... He had also engineered an album by this really little-known Irish band. Um, maybe you heard of it. This album was called The Joshua Tree by some band called U2. They were like, I don't know, some sort of folk rock. It was kind of niche, but whatever. Uh, Flood was obviously an amazing choice since he had a taste for electronic bands. And Violator would be a huge notch in his belt. He would become increasingly sought after by big names thanks to his success with Depeche Mode and U2. And he would end up teaming up with Tepesh's own Alan Wilder, who was the so-called proper musician of the group, uh, coming from a background in classical piano. And even more so, Alan had a vision for the overall sound and spent the, you know, the latter part of the 80s steering Depeche Mode in a darker, more ambient direction. And this came to fruition on, on albums like Black Celebration and Music for the Masses. So... Depeche Mode weren't really goth per se, but Alan leaned away from anything bright and poppy, and he preferred dark and moody, and I think he was pleased when songwriter Martin L. Gore started kind of pushing the envelope with his lyrics, you know, exploring topics like sex and drugs and religion and moral ambiguity. So for sure, Alan and Flood got on well, and they made a really great team. So every time I mention Flood from here on out, I really mean Flood and Alan, since they were inseparable in the studio, and they had the final say on how each song developed. And this was sometimes at odds with Martin's vision, as we'll see. So Francois Kovorkian did the final mix here on all the songs except Enjoy the Silence. 
He was a top remixer at the time with a long career in DJing and mixing dance hits. And, you know, by all accounts, he was something of an eccentric and a bit of a perfectionist. Uh, but to be clear, the band's usual workflow was for Martin to write the songs and to present some home-recorded demos to the band. And in the past, these demos tended to be fairly well worked out. But for Violator, the band asked him to keep the demos more minimal so that they could work out the arrangements in the studio. And as far as the making of Violator, you really want to check out the documentary that was released as part of Mute Records 2006 reissue. They reissued all the albums up through Exciter at the time, and each had a documentary of like 30 or 40 minutes. And taken together, they tell the whole story, including interviews with the band and all the various related folks in the music industry and so forth. And it's pretty interesting stuff. I'm not going to try to rehash it all here. I encourage you to check it out for yourself. Um, the chapter for Violator is called, If You Want to Use Guitars, Use Guitars, referring to how Martin started using the guitar more for his songwriting around this point in time. Uh, but the production on Violator, I could describe as being very clean, but also punchy. So the sounds are separated so you can hear everything, almost like clinically so. Uh, it sounds awesome in headphones, but it doesn't sacrifice the low end at all. These songs all push a lot of air. I mean, some of these were the biggest dance floor fillers of 1990 and beyond, even today. So the mixes really hold up. Uh, they sound, in my ears, timeless, modern. They're not awash in the cliched 80s reverb, for instance. Uh, the sounds are a mix of recognizable instruments and creative samples and nothing sounds too of the mo the moment uh, because flood was careful to you know choose sounds uh, wisely and to preserve a groove at all times so i'm not sure i'd call violator an audiophile record because i am anything but an audiophile i mean i listened to this happily on a third generation radio shack cassette for years so don't quiz me on my speaker impedance or anything like that but Songs like World in My Eyes and Halo just have a stunning production and sound mind-bogglingly good on headphones or on a big speaker system. And the percussion alone on Personal Jesus will just knock you out of your socks. And the jam at the end sounds amazing. And on the other end of things, you have like Waiting for the Night, which is one of the most pretty, subtle, and atmospheric songs Depeche Mode ever recorded. So the dynamic range across the whole album is very impressive. And I'd argue that Violator does still work best as an album, with the proper sequencing and all the little interstitial bits, as we'll see. So let's dig into it here, 20 minutes in. Uh, things start off with World in My Eyes, and the first thing you hear is the synth bass line. And what a bass line! Uh, if I recall, Flood and Allen came up with it, and the rest of the arrangement came from there. So this is a very slow, kind of groovy song, uh, that's still very hard-hitting. It has these really sexy lyrics that match the music, and it's a great indicator of what's to come. Uh, they tapped this as the fourth single. Here it is. Uh, it was backed with two of the greatest B-sides ever, Happiest Girl and Sea of Sin, both of which could have easily been on the album as A-sides, uh, or as A-sides. The remixes here are fantastic. Particularly, I like the pulsating orbital mix of Happiest Girl, which was done by The Orb. It's pretty jaw-dropping. Uh, my version of this single has three mixes of World in My Eyes, two of Happiest Girl, and two of Sea of Sin. 
which was a real bargain for the $8 or whatever I dropped for it back in the day. And, of course, needless to say, this came out in the middle of uh, the single craziness. So each was available in like 20 formats across 20 markets with all these exclusive mixes and baloney like that. So good luck collecting them all. This is just the copy that came out in the United States at the time. But yeah, I love this single. It's like a great value, really cool listen. Um, World in My Eyes as an album album opener was really, really strong. Um, It's a great way to lure the listener in and just get them on board very quickly. And that goes right into the next tune, which is Sweetest Perfection. Um, Now, this one was a head-scratcher to me as a kid, listening to this for the first time. I saw this as a much weaker song because it was noisy and kind of atonal, wasn't really groovy at all, it just kind of staggers along, and it hit me much like the song Nobody Knows hit me on Nights of Ebb's Showtime, as sort of a, a second track down-tempo misfire. But nowadays, I can appreciate better that both of these tunes have a weird, half-drunken stalker vibe. Uh, Sweetest Perfection is a song about obsession, and it really comes across, uh, the ending is just really creepy and intense and i also might have been put off because martin gore sings this one not dave gone so it does have kind of a different feel to it which was maybe a little bit jarring on the first listen but later i'd come to really like martin's vocals on this song and on others um of course that goes into maybe their second most popular song ever personal jesus um what can i say about this song that hasn't been said to death i guess that I wasn't familiar with it at the time when I first heard the album. As I said, I learned about Depeche Mode only after Violator came out, and Personal Jesus was the advanced single, so I missed it, and I listened to it for the first time as just part of the album. And it's literally a stomper, with the band stomping on flight cases as the basis for the percussion. And flight cases hadn't sounded this cool since Michael Jackson pounded on one just before Eddie Van Halen's solo and beat it. But somehow, singer Dave Gaughan's vocals turn this little guitar bluesy rocker thing into this anthem. Maybe it's the reach out, touch faith line, and the way it begs to be sung by an audience of screaming fans. Or maybe it's Martin's twangy, Dwayne Eddy-like guitar line, the way it evokes this huge space, kind of like in the American Southwest. Like I said, it's kind of bluesy. It's also a little bit country but in a good country kind of way, like Johnny Cash, not in a bad country kind of way, like Billy Ray Cyrus. Uh, In fact, the video shows the band in the Old West visiting a bordello of all things. So yeah, they they really leaned into that Western aspect of the song, and it was really catchy. And I'd soon hear this song just out the wazoo, and the sheer repetition would kind of dull its impact a bit, not unlike Huey Lewis. But what I really liked was its groove and the last 90 seconds or so of this album version just stripped the whole song down to that simple groove and i thought that was just super cool to hear on an album uh it wasn't something that they always played on the radio it was really on that album version and you know i just wanted to have a 30 minute loop of that breakdown just going and going uh kind of reminded me of the breakdown at the end of new order's morning sun extended mix of true faith by shep pettibone or even Depeche Mode's own aggro mix of Never Let Me Down Again, which might be my favorite remix of theirs ever. You know, just something for the DJ to just relentlessly loop, just pure uncut groove. Um, I don't have the personal Jesus 
single on CD, oddly. I think I do have a cassette somewhere. It has like a million mixes of Personal Jesus along with a B-side called Dangerous, which is a really cool song. Um, the one mix on that single that stood out to me was the acoustic version of Personal Jesus that's just Dave singing with Martin on acoustic guitar. We played that one a lot. Um, but I could dig that this song was so unusual. It's rhythm, it's melody, um, even it's lyrics. You know, it wasn't rock by the numbers. It was something new, and it was a sign that great things were coming from this band. And that was absolutely true in terms of the album because the very next track was Halo, which is my personal favorite here, even though it wasn't one of the four singles. What can I say about this song? Uh, I love everything about it. I love the lyrics, the imagery. I mean, the first line alone is, you wear guilt like shackles on your feet, like a halo in reverse. That's just amazing. And Dave's vocal delivery is spot on. The synth work, the use of piano to underscore certain moments, um, the moment when the drums come in just gives me chills. Uh, the synths, the bass, the drums, they all kind of interlock into this amazing rhythm. And then they add a string section to really create these dramatic moments and to lift you way up and just drop you down. You know, like you're in the ocean just riding these waves. And the whole thing, in my mind, is just flawless. It's just a perfect track. And Alan said that this was one song where he started using drum loops instead of individual samples. So in this case, they looped a performance of one or two bars. So it, if it sounds like a real drummer, that's because it is. But it's not one of the band members. Uh, later, he would call this out as a big moment of realization, that the imperfections in the human performance were essential, and that quanti quantizing every note to the grid just kind of killed the feel. And that's something that he would explore more on subsequent albums, even some of the albums that he did on his own with his solo project, recoil but yeah in my mind halo should have been a single over any of the other tunes uh, they did do a video for it with dave and martin as guys in a circus show and as rivals for this girl's affections and it was pretty strange and it was typical of anton corbin he'd get an odd video idea in his head and just more or less force it on the band <laughs> and more on that in a bit but i love halo uh, get yourself a great set of headphones in a quiet room and give that one a deep listen because it's just amazing. So at this point, we need to dial it back a bit. And we do with Waiting for the Night. Uh, it's one of a couple ballads here. There's no drums, just burbling synths. The song is a quiet ode to nighttime, which any self-respecting Depeche Mode fan could relate to. The lyrics are at once kind of calming, but also sort of hallucinatory sort of nightmarish, and I guess the metal band Ghost really dug this song because they did a really straight cover of it on their 2013 EP, If You Have Ghost, which is a really cool cover. Check it out. I do love me some Ghost. May end up talking about them sometime. Uh, but yeah, on vinyl and on cassette uh, versions of this album, this song would end side A. And what a side that was. Just an amazing side. Side B starts with another song, you might have heard of um, probably the biggest song in their entire career. Uh, the song, of course, is Enjoy the Silence. And as I said, this is the one that brought Depeche Mode to my attention, having broken through into FM radio in such a big way and getting a lot of airplay in public spaces. It just sort of entered your consciousness. Um, this tune has an interesting history. 
which the band and Flood have described at length online. Uh, the short version of it is that Martin recorded the demo as a slow ballad. The song, after all, was called Enjoy the Silence. It was supposed to be pretty down-tempo. And they recreated that version on the single as the harmonium mix. Um, and Alan had the idea, though, to turn it into an upbeat dance tune, because <laughs> why not? And Martin reluctantly went along with it, resulting in one of their biggest hits. Uh, I understand Alan and Flood programmed the basic rhythm on Flood's Roland System 700, and then cajoled Martin into playing the main riff on the guitar. And it just, it's just an all-around amazing song. The only thing that kind of irks me about it today is the snare drum sound. It's got that big gated reverb snare that sounds oh so very 80s. And I wish they would have used something more modern because it really sticks out like a sore thumb. And maybe it's there because this was the one track that Daniel Miller helped mix. I don't know. But of course, you know, this was a huge blockbuster single. I have the CD here. The cover is very cool. It's a variant of the Violator cover with a white rose uh, instead of a maroon rose. And it's on a dark blue background. And on this single, we have, you know, a bunch of mixes of the song naturally. And there are two B-sides. There are these creepy piano tunes called Sibling and Memphisto, which were cool, but you know, really weren't fully formed songs, in my opinion. They were more like these little instrumental oddities. But this video was all over MTV. It was also directed by Anton Corbin, and it had Dave Gone dressed up like a king and wandering around in the snow on a mountain just carrying a deck chair, you know, just looking for a place where he could enjoy the silence, you know, get it? I guess that was the joke. Um, but I guess the joke was on Dave uh, because the rest of the band only appears in these brief cutaways and they were really happy to only have to put in about a half an hour's work on the video whereas Dave had to freeze his ass off for several days. So yeah, there's an awesome outtake reel of the band on YouTube cracking up while filming their bits. You gotta definitely check it out. It's hilarious. They're all trying to look very serious and cool whereas... Uh, you know, more often than not, Dave will do something and they just bust up. It's hilarious. So great stuff. Um, but yeah, I love Enjoy the Silence. I mean, who doesn't? I still play the guitar riff from time to time because it's classic. It's just amazing. So this song ends with one of Depeche Mode's famous little interludes. Uh, this one is informally called Interlude Number 2, Crucified, due to someone shouting the word Crucified! And reportedly, it was Andy Fletcher's one vocal contribution. So there you go. R.I.P. the great Andy Fletcher. Um, it's just this little atmospheric thing with some guitar. It's kind of neat. But it leads right into Policy of Truth, which was another big hit single. Uh, reportedly, this was the hardest song of, uh, for them to get down onto tape. It ended up, ended up going through a number of iterations before they went with this slide guitar hook as the main hook. I do love this song a lot too. To me, the drums sound very live. So maybe it was another drum loop, not really sure. Uh, I like how the drums come in in earnest, just not right at the beginning, but like part of the way into the song, just inexplicably, the drums kind of really kick in. And I like how there are occasional grace notes there. It's got this really funky, you know, tight rhythm the lyrics are all about how much easier it can be to lie than to tell the truth. So another great example of how Martin was just you know, twisting expectations 
trying to get in some mildly controversial viewpoints. And to me, this song is just of a piece with World in My Eyes and Halo. All of them are really groovy and soulful, really hard-hitting drums. They all sound very organic. They don't really sound overly programmed. And the guitar here is really subtle. It's just those slides on the guitar. And at the end, it sounds like Martin is using an ebo to play these long, sustained leads. Um, an ebo, if you don't know, by the way, a really cool little gizmo you can use to just uh, create long, sustained notes on the guitar. And it's a fun little toy to play with. <coughs> Pardon me, but yeah, very cool song. Uh, the video is yet another one from Anton Corbin. This time the band is just filmed in slow motion, lo-fi, black and white, snogging with various women. So <laughs> pretty strange, but I'm sure it was cheap to film. Uh, the single, which I also don't have, was interesting in that they lured the KLF into doing a remix. That would be the Transcentral remix. And it also had an instrumental B-side called Collide, and that's K-A-L-I-E-D. And we had no idea how to pronounce that until someone posted an article where Martin L. Gore stated that he meant it as in kaleidoscope. So that's how we figured out how to pronounce it. And it's kind of this odd little techno track with no vocals. And I think they used it as the opener on the World Violation Tour. So Policy of Truth goes into the second ballad sung by Martin, which is Blue Dress. And this is another song about obsession, maybe. Uh, I don't know, not much to say about it. It's a neat little song. No video or single for it, though. And that leads into the second little interlude, which the fans call interlude number three. No idea what happened to interlude number one. Uh, but it's got a little synth horn lead with some vocal samples, and mostly it acts as an extended intro into the final track, which is Clean. And anyone who's ever heard Pink Floyd's One of These Days off their album Metal will immediately recognize this bass line. Um, it's just a delayed note played over and over. And Alan admitted later that that's where they got the idea. So check out Pink Floyd's Metal, one of my favorite Pink Floyd albums. I will probably talk about it at some point, even though it was recorded before I was born. Pink Floyd is just an amazing band overall, especially their work in the 1970s. <coughs> Pardon me. Mm. So it's nice to see that Alan likes Pink Floyd as much as I do. Uh, it's great to hear a reference to them on a Depeche Mode album. So lyrically, Clean is one of my favorites. Uh, it's just a guy, you know, just a guy coming to terms with his indulgences. And the most clever bit is the chorus where he sings, Now I'm clean. And then they add a sometimes at the end. <laughs> and that's just so great. I still use this today. Like I'll say that my one cat is a really good cat sometimes <laughs> and it, it just makes all the difference uh again these little lyrical twists that he throws in there just give the songs these new meanings and they add a bit of an edge and howard jones for sure was not going to write a song about how he was clean sometimes but yeah on this song alan's production work really comes to the fore and when i think of what it was he contributed to depeche mode sound this is one of the songs that jumps to mind. It's got the swirling atmospherics. It's really dark and brooding. It's cinematic. I mean, you can imagine this song playing over a chase montage or something. And that was all Alan. And after he left, spoiler alert, 
they'd be stuck trying to fill his very, very big shoes. And in my mind, in some ways, they never managed to do that. Things would just never be the same after he left the band. And without that extra edge, Depeche Mode would really no longer compel me like they once did. I would kind of lose the plot. But that rounds out this album. So altogether with B-sides, it's 15 or 17 tunes, depending on whether you count the interludes as separate tunes. Quite an impressive bit of work. So of course they'd go on tour uh, for the World Violation Tour. I can never figure out how to put this thing. There you go. Now it's right side up. Um, And of course I uh, would miss that tour completely. And I wouldn't really be able to go back and even experience it on video because for whatever reason... Even though they were now among the biggest bands in the world, no one really thought to have the tour professionally filmed. So we had D.A. Pennebaker film the Music for the Masses tour, which resulted in 101, but nothing but VHS cameras for Violator. And it's a real shame because, you know, I feel like the band were at their peak at that point. And fortunately, some of the surviving videos are kind of passable and at least have decent audio. Um... Again, I think this is the band at their career best. Dave's voice, for sure, would never be better in my mind than it was on this this album here. He was not quite 30 years old here. Um, he might have peaked even later. And, and I guess it's arguable if maybe the next album surpassed this. Not in my mind, but that's a matter of opinion. But he might have definitely peaked even later, if not for all the crap that happened in his life shortly after this. Uh, But as it was, in my mind, this is Depeche Mode right here at the top of their game. Musically, lyrically, in terms of performance. Um, Again, the next album, which we'll get into some other time, would be a great one as well, no doubt. But it's not my favorite. To me, Violator will always be number one. You know, that's probably a matter of taste. So why do I love it? I mean, obviously... It is one of the defining albums of the 1990s, and for sure it was the biggest album by any electronic band ever to that point, and absolutely the biggest album by any band that had the audacity not to have a drummer. Uh, So no longer would electronic bands be stuck just in the club. After Violator, they'd be front and center. They'd be competing for ears with the guitar rockers and the power trios. So this was really a watershed moment in music. Uh, Depeche Mode took the alternative rock movement to a new blockbuster level. I mean, we had to hear questions like, were Depeche Mode even rock? What were they? Were personal Jesus and enjoy the silence guitar songs or not? And did it matter that they didn't have a drummer? Did it matter that they were on an indie label back in England? You know, these were questions that the music industry and press were trying to sort out. But to me, I didn't care about any of that. I just love these songs. You know, I always liked electronic music more than conventional rock music, with a few exceptions. And I liked club music in particular. Uh, To me, Depeche Mode were doing what a lot of electronic bands were trying to do, which was to marry up electronics and rock. And that's what New Order were up to all through the 80s. But now Depeche Mode came in and did it more successfully than anyone else. They were just at the top of the heap. You know, these songs were mostly electronic. But they rock just as hard as anything Aerosmith or Bon Jovi were doing, and arguably more so, because Bon Jovi wasn't filling any dance floors, and Bon Jovi wasn't selling millions of units of singles full of club remixes, and had nothing at all to do with club culture. But Depeche Mode came from that world, and now they were bringing it to the fore, to everyone's attention. 
And I love that these were dance tunes and the whole synth and drum machine thing. But really, I also love the songwriting. These were just fantastic pop songs, uh, not just dance songs designed for a club. It was all verse, chorus, verse stuff. Anyone could enjoy them. It was very accessible. Most people did enjoy them. Violator is completely chock full of hooks. It's very catchy, but it also wasn't pandering. And it's hard to realize now, but it was also ahead of its time. In 1990, there just weren't many albums that sounded like this. Uh, Depeche Mode kind of anticipated the kind of darker sounds of, of the 90s, making music that was edgy and not all just upbeat. And this was very far from Huey Lewis and Genesis. This was the sound of Generation X growing up and learning about sex and drugs and rock and roll and maybe some of the darker sides of the world. And this was a time when life was about to change for most of us. This was the soundtrack to leaving high school and moving on to whatever was next. Work, more school, who knows, uh, more responsibility. And for me, the mood that Depeche Mode presented with Violator fit with the other music I was listening to at the time, like Ministry, Nine Inch Nails, Skinny Puppy, Joy Division and New Order, Thrill Kill Cult, The Sisters of Mercy, and all these other bands that I've been talking about on this show, uh, all of which have those darker elements. So remember, at this point in history, we're coming from a world ruled by the previous generations, Reaganism, Thatcherism, Reagan's arms race and driving up the national debt, a debt that would be paid by future generations, including ours. You know, our leaders were mortgaging our future for more cash for them. The greed of the 80s was basically them cashing in on the backs of labor and the environment. And who cares about that when we can make money now, right? So that was the age of the so-called moral majority when the Christian right were flexing their political power or trying to tell you what was good and bad. Back when the PMRC wanted to put ratings on rock music, this was a world awash in nuclear weapons. As Carl Sagan put it, we were all standing knee-deep in gasoline just waiting for someone to light a match. And maybe it's hard to remember that now, even as bad as things are now, but it was easy as a kid in those days to feel totally screwed back then, uh, to feel like maybe the previous generations didn't have our best interests at heart. So it was natural as we got a bit older to gravitate toward music that was darker and angrier then Huey Lewis and Howard Jones. And to me, Depeche Mode fit right in there. Um, you know, personal Jesus was televangelism brought into the club. Like, why not? Uh, Enjoy the Silence was everyone I knew looking for a bit of escapism. So I got to watch it here with the philosophizing because if I'm not careful, someone's going to come in here and give me a master's degree. So let me just say that more than anything, I love these songs. I didn't much care about the larger issues here. Um, or how Depeche Mode paved the way for countless electronic acts to follow. I just love these songs, and I still do. So there you have it, gang. One of the landmark albums of the 1990s, and I would argue of the 80s too, Depeche Mode's Violator. This is a timeless classic that sounds as fresh today as it did 30-plus years ago, and it would not only launch Depeche Mode to world fame, but would also light the fuse for their eventual demise in some ways. And that's a story I'll get into later when I tackle their next album. But for now, we're going to put a pin in it. You're listening to Stronger Than Reason. 
this little show of mine that's available on YouTube and also as a Spotify or Apple podcast, if that's your thing. If you liked what you heard and you want to reward me with a banana pellet, please leave a review or a comment or like and subscribe depending on your platform. I do try to get back to everyone who comments. Thanks to all who have already done that. Thanks to you for listening as long as you have. And until next time, take care and stay strong.